0: Hello, Parkview. This is Thomas Hoke, and I want to welcome you to the Parkview Groups podcast. This episode is for the week of March 13th through 19th, so it relates to the passage upcoming to be preached on Sunday the 19th. My goal each week on this podcast is to inform and guide group members and to train group leaders and whoever else wants to learn at Parkview on how to make disciples. So this week we are going to learn from Acts 22, and twenty three, and we'll have a short training on group prayer. Uh, so let's remind ourselves what we're doing here. Community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety, where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. So let's uh, let's take it away. All right, a couple things to uh, update you about. Actually, really just one big thing. Uh, you probably are aware that we have a big special event coming up Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is on April 9th this year, which I think is basically just about the earliest it possibly can be April 9th. And so uh, that means Good Friday is on April 7th. Um, What we're going to do this year is April 7th, we're going to have Good Friday services at Central Campus only at 6 p.m. And on Easter Sunday, on the 9th, we'll have services basically at our normal times and our normal places. So at Central, 9 and 1030, and at East at 1030. So if you're listening to this, my invitation to you is to do three things. First, attend one. So decide which one you'd like to come to. If you're at East, you have one option. If you're at Central, uh, my encouragement to you would be, first, if you're able to invite someone, which will be the other thing I'll ask you to do, obviously you're going to want to go with that person. Um, we also tend to have a lot more people at the nine o'clock. So if you want to go to the 1030 just to serve and make room for, for guests, that would be a great idea too. So attend one, uh, invite one. So invite someone. Who do you think the Lord might have in mind for you to invite to come to Easter service? People are often more open to joining you for uh, a well-known Christian holiday. Uh, if they're not Christians, um, just to explore and see what it's all about. So invite someone and finally serve at one of them. Uh, Easter holiday is a time when we have, uh, increased sort of programming things we're offering for new people, especially. And when we have things like that, that means we have increased needs to make sure everyone is welcomed well and, um, cared for well in those services. So Easter coming up April 9th, attend one, invite one, serve, uh, during one, and my if I were to give a fourth thing, it would be let's pray, let's pray for Christ to be formed in us during this Lenten season as we prepare for Easter, Good Friday, celebrate Christ's death and resurrection, and for people to come to know Christ through uh, through those services. So that's all for the inform. You are informed. Let's move on to be guided through this passage. All right. In the guide segment, we want to get the big picture of this passage, navigate any speed bumps that could disrupt discussion, and give you a couple places to land in application. So we've got another large passage here in Acts 22, um, and so I'll dive right in. Acts 22, and I'm actually going to start in verse 21 for a little bit of context. So remember, Paul is in Jerusalem. He has just given the speech to the temple. He's been sort of identified in the temple because of his vow he had taken, and the angry crowds tried to kill him. Uh, Then the Romans intercede, and he gives his speech, um, and this is how it ends, basically. So, chapter 21, verse 21, sorry, 22, verse 21, uh, says, And he said to me, that is, God, the Lord said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. I'll stop there. So what's going on here, uh, obviously, is that they've, they've, they're enraged, and then they want to go grab Paul again, as they were trying to before. But um, they're shouting, they're throwing off their cloaks, and flinging dust into the air. These are signs that they just completely reject what he has said. Uh, throwing off their cloaks may refer to either to to uh, just an outward sign of their rejection of what Paul said, or it could be that they were sort of showing that they're ready to stone him. Uh, you might remember when Stephen is stoned, they took off their cloaks to stone him. Um, it could be that they were saying, "What? Let, let's go ahead and give this guy the death penalty. Um, flinging dust in the air, again, is sort of a, it's a an act of defiance. It's an act of of, of uh, you're saying what you said is dirty, what you said is wrong, um, and we're going to show it outwardly. And so the tribune whose, whose job, the Roman tribune that here, his job is to keep order in the city. Uh, he's concerned. He says, let's bring Paul into the, the barracks, which were adjacent to the temple at that time, and so that Paul could be examined, which is a nice way of saying be uh, interrogated by flogging, meaning by torture, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Remember, uh, you might say, "What? find out why they're shouting against him like this? We just heard the whole speech. But remember, he, Paul delivered all this in Hebrew or more likely Aramaic. Hebrew is just a way of saying that. Um, and so the, the Roman centurion and the Roman tribune and all the hundreds of soldiers that were there, they wouldn't have known what the, what Paul was saying. Uh, and so he wants to find out, and he's going to do that by bringing Paul into police headquarters and uh, torturing him and interrogating him. Let's continue on. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, this is interesting. <laughs> um Roman citizenship. We know this is going to play a part in kind of the rest of the story of Acts. Paul's Roman citizenship and what it means and what it what it uh, guarantees him. Um, we know that Roman citizenship guaranteed him special rights as far as how he was treated, especially in the practice of of justice um, with the Romans. And so, what's what's maybe most interesting here, though, is the timing of Paul's you know sharing this information. Why does Paul wait until he is inside of the Roman, um, you know, castle, basically police headquarters, so to speak, and he's about to be whipped? He's literally been stretched out for the whips. That's the moment that he decides to even mention that he is a Roman citizen. Now, there are a few thoughts <laughs> here. Um, first, would be that if he had done so, let's say when the when the Romans came out initially saw that Paul was being beaten, the city's in an uproar. And remember, they get him and they, they put chains on him. Um, if he had, at that moment, before the whole Jewish crowd who, remember, their their big charge against Paul is he's not for the Jewish people. He is against us. He's against the law, the temple, this place, all that. And then when the Romans come out uh, to to arrest him, and basically, if he says at that moment, hey, by the way, I am a Roman citizen, and so you have to treat me well, then then you have to imagine that that crowd would have been absolutely confirmed in their minds that Paul was totally against them because the Romans are the occupying uh, force. And so that could be a reason why Paul waits until this moment. Another simple reason is just that it's not his job. <laughs> it's not his job. It's it's the uh, the centurion's job to identify who Paul is and whether he's a citizen. And so it's it wasn't really his responsibility. Another one is that... Um, Paul is is so careful about choosing the right moments to stand on his rights, to exercise his freedom and his um, the things that he is owed, so to speak, um, and times when he doesn't think it's right. Now, notice that when he says he says, "Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned?" He's asking a question. <laughs> he, far from sort of assertively you know, I can imagine a a video today of someone, you know, talking to a police officer or someone saying, you don't have the right to do this. You can't do that. Why are you, you know, and really just getting in, getting in the authority's face to to say, you don't have the right to do what you're doing. That is not at all what Paul does. And keep in mind, he's about to be tortured uh, and interrogated. And he asks a question. He doesn't even say, I am a Roman citizen. Um, uh, he, he infers it, of course, but he respectfully, not stridently, not aggressively, uh, he says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Uh, so when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So Paul's message struck home, even if he didn't have to say it uh, outwardly. Um, so the tribune said, uh, came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Now, this is a significant moment as well. Um, so we find out, yes, you know, Paul, he is, he is a Roman citizen. Um, and the tribune, who, by the way, remember, the tribune is basically kind of the chief of police, the chief of of keeping um, the city of Jerusalem kind of under Roman control. So they're not, remember, the 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 peace that Rome offered to conquered cities was basically they would kind of let them do their business. And as long as the city stayed under control, there weren't rioting, they weren't, you know, things weren't getting socially disordered. Um, they would let them kind of do their business, but they needed to keep uh, those things from happening. And the Tribune was the one charged with doing that. And so the Tribune says, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul says, but I am a citizen by birth. Now, why would the Tribune ask that question? I bought this, it's not even a question, right? I bought the citizenship for a large sum. What is he saying? Well, there were different ways that you could become a citizen. Uh, and the way that you became a citizen determined your social status in the Roman world, which was enormously important in an honor and shame culture. And so the, this would also be related to the consequences of the centurion's mistake. So if Paul is a Roman citizen of of lower social significance, lower social status than the centurion, then he might feel less afraid of the way that he has treated Paul and he might operate differently. But, as we'll find out, he is not. In fact, Paul has higher social status in the Roman accounting of things because he has inherited his his citizenship by birth, meaning he has enormously influential parents or grandparents or a whole lineage of significance in comparison to the Tribune, who he will have learned is in big trouble because of what he has done. We see that. See, in verse 29, it goes on. So those who were about to examine him, that is interrogate him, withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. And so the penalty for that action could be great. Uh, Roman citizens were not even meant to be chained, uh, as we saw Paul was basically immediately. He was bound hand and foot, remember? Okay, so on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So Paul has been given a measure of freedom now, he's being treated better, um, but the centurion still wants to figure out why Paul is being accused of what he's being accused of, and so he brings him down to back to the temple, or in the temple courts, to... To be examined by the chief priests, and basically he's he's using them to get advice and to listen uh, to to the Jewish leaders on what he ought to do with Paul, and basically figure out how did this guy, why is everyone starting a riot, and why do they want to kill him? And looking intently at the council, Paul said, "Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all con- good conscience up to this day." By the way, a a good a good sentence to unpack in your group. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. I'll pause there. Why would he do this? Well, we actually know from uh, non-Christian history um, that Ananias had a reputation for having a really quick temper. Um, and there is later tradition that would tell us that this was the way that um, striking someone on the mouth was the way of protecting God's honor. Um especially against liars. Um, it may have been just spite. Um, but that second, that first option I mentioned, um, it would make sense of Paul's response because Paul says to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest?" And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So what's going on here? Did Paul really not know that this guy was the high priest? Is that possible? Um, What is he saying? Um, And so there are a few possibilities. First, it could be that he genuinely doesn't know. Um, It's possible that Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth non-verbally. We know that Paul has vision issues from the book of Galatians and other places. Possibly from when he was stoned, he was injured, may have poor vision, um, and so possibly he just couldn't see or didn't see. Um, so it's possible. Now, remember, he may not know who which one is the high priest and which one is Ananias. We were not living; <laughs> they were not living in a mass media age with newspapers and pictures. That's why Paul, remember, you know, he it takes. It takes a while for him to be identified in the temple because there weren't, you know, wanted posters out there of Paul saying, have you seen this man? Um, you just you had to be identified in different ways. Um, but what does Paul's response then mean? Another option is that he is being sarcastic or, you know, some would say, well, he was just making a mistake. And I think it, we can be open to that option. Um, I think what's most likely is that this is Paul's prophetic critique of the high priest um, says, contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. And they say, would would you revile God's high priest? And he said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And I, I won't get completely into it, um, but the some of the cases that I read, basically for which which option is best here, I found it most compelling that Paul was actually saying, you you are disqualified as the high priest because you have rejected. the Christ. And so uh, that one's really up for debate, though. It's not entirely clear why um, he responded this way. But moving on. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So uh, this it's sort of a bizarre scenario. It's it's very likely, very likely. All all the commentators I read agreed that Luke is presenting basically a compressed version of what happened here, and that's that's the normal practice. That's not uh, you know a surprise or anything. That's just how how ancient narratives were put together. Um, and and what his point is is that uh, Paul came and experienced injustice, responded to it, and then. Um, he testified, you know, that he was there because of the resurrection of the dead, which happened, to, that split the room basically, and so people have different ideas about why Paul did this. Some, some said this was a calculated political maneuver um, because he knew that the group was sharply disagreeing about uh, about this part, you know of. Of the Bible and how they understood God, that if he if he made his case based on the thing that was really dividing them, that he could get them arguing with themselves instead of being mad at him. That's I think that's possible, um, but I think I think that he's also just being real, being honest. Um, he says it's re- because of the resurrection of the dead. Remember, um, in Paul's testimony that he gave, uh, his essential point was. I am a faithful Jew. I'm just as faithful as you. I'm zealous for the law. I want to fulfill the law. And I, you know, in good conscience before God, I believed I was doing the right thing until God himself, the resurrected Christ, intervened and changed my mind. So if you have a problem about my methods with the Gentiles, you should take it up with the resurrected Christ, who I saw, whom I saw. And so when he says that I'm, a, it's because of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. He is pointing back to sort of the main point of contention that came that came about with his, you know, his argument they made before the entire temple, and it did happen to split the assembly, uh, which resulted in him being handed back to the Romans. Um, now there's, I think there's also a good point in recognizing that uh, given what happened with him being smacked on the mouth and the high priest responding the way that he did that Paul would have realized immediately that he was not going to get a fair trial from the Sanhedrin. And so he was not interested in being tried by them. Um, and so in, in any case, what happens is he, he uh, is brought out of, of that assembly. Yet again, he's sort of saved by the Romans, which is ironic, but um, he, they bring him back into the barracks and we'll see what happens with him later on. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, this is the last verse. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so Jesus has comes to Paul, and of course this would have been a massive encouragement um, and encourages him to keep, keep going forward. So uh, I've taken a little bit more time than we normally take on this one just because it's a massive passage, but let me give you a big idea to think about this week. So first, Christians must navigate hostility with courage and wisdom. Christians, you, Christian, listening to this, you must navigate hostility from those around you, from the pervading culture, from whoever it might be that treats you with hostility. Because you're a Christian, by the way, not because you're being a jerk. If you're a jerk, it's because you're a jerk. But you must navigate hostility with courage and and wisdom. That's what we see Paul doing and that really in this whole section of Acts that's I think the the overall message that we're meant to receive is look how Paul encounters what every Christian must deal with at some point. And so Christians navigate hostility with courage and wisdom. Now, uh, a couple points to just meditate on and think through. First, we see Paul is he is neither a fool nor a coward in the circumstance. And what I mean by that is Paul does not just sort of blunder into danger. For danger's sake, he's not looking to become a martyr on purpose or anything like that. Uh, You know, looking for the glory of of just standing up for Jesus and and almost being happy about being rejected. Not at all. In fact, it's clear that he hopes at every point that he can convince the people that hate him to agree with him, Um, and he goes to great pains of risking his life, risking his neck, so that they could. So he's he's not a fool. He's not looking for trouble. He's not looking for danger. And on the other hand, he's not a coward. He's not afraid of danger. He's ready to go. He's ready to like he's, you know, he said back in chapter 20, I'm ready to go. Not only, um, you know, I'm ready to die for the sake of uh, the name of the Lord Jesus. And so he's the two ends of possibility for our relationship with risk, right? Uh, if risk, our, our risk aversion is a spectrum from on the one hand being almost excited about risk and eager to be risky, um, all the way over to being so risk- averse that we won't even open our mouths about jesus paul is neither right he neither rushes into danger nor flees risk where where uh it's needed so that's a question you might think about am i living a life am i having an appropriate relationship to risk to rejection um do you have a context where that even even matters it can be really easy to sort of arrange your life in such a way that you you don't have any contact with people where you don't need to even answer that question. So maybe that's one worth thinking about. Um, secondly, and this, uh, this is the only other one I'm going to mention, but is to just remember the Lord's affirmation. You know, these, this is the, the second time that we have the, the Lord Jesus directly encouraging Paul. You have to imagine just the incredible affirmation that would have been for Paul, who's undergoing this alone, we know, which would have been, I mean, just imagine, how stifling that must have felt to have the Lord Jesus himself come and affirm you. Um, that is what we all need. And because of, of God's word, we know that we do have that. Even if we don't have the Lord Jesus himself appearing to us, that his spirit is with us. Um, so remember the Lord's affirmation over you. Uh, if you had that kind of affirmation, what steps of risk, what steps of boldness and courage might you take? I'll come back to our, my mentioning of Easter. Easter. Uh, who might you invite? Who might you look to be spiritually uh, active, giving spiritual initiative with to help them grow in Christ or go toward Christ? Um, If you had that kind of affirmation from the Lord, which you do, um, who might that be? So uh, some good points to think about. A great text. Can't wait to have it preached um, this weekend. Um, I think it'll be a great thing. Um, And so with that said, that's the end of our guide segment. We're going to move on to training. Um, So Join us if you wish. And if you're a group leader, join us. All right, so uh, here's the deal. (laughs) As I was coming over to uh, record this podcast today, I realized that I forgot the book that I was going to basically reference all of my uh, everything for this week's uh, training topic on. Um, And so I think I've been thinking about just moving that to a different date, but I thought I can at least mention a couple of things. So I wanted to talk about prayer. Uh, How do we cultivate, nope, I don't wanna repeat the word, how do we encourage a culture of prayer in our community groups? How do we um, make prayer not just sort of a perfunctory, last thing that we do, Uh, we should, so I guess we will, last four minutes that we have rushed, a little bit shallow, okay, maybe it's just me, but that's often how I feel like prayer goes in our group. I can't help but think, what are people learning about prayer from the way that I emphasize it or don't emphasize it in the context of our group? I wonder how you would answer that question. Is prayer vital and deep? Is it is it happening not just inside of group, but do you know that it's happening outside of group between group members, praying for one another? I, I've I've gotten a, a few really helpful sort of tips and encouragements from from what I have seen many of you do, and I've stolen so many of your ideas about how to encourage a culture of prayer in your group. And so I'm just going to mention some of those. This is my way of doing this in a short way since I forgot my book. Um, one is to start with prayer. So it's it's easy to let prayer kind of wait until the end, and then, you know, you're basically out of time, and you have to say, okay, who can pray for us in one minute? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, an easy way to avoid that, you know, time pinch. Uh, kind of messing with your prayer time is to just put prayer at the front and say if our goal is to maybe pray for five or ten minutes together uh, or more, it can be a really helpful thing, uh, then put it at the front so that uh, it's okay if the Bible discussion gets a little bit truncated this time because we we really value our prayer time together. Another one is I know of a group that basically passes around a prayer request sheet uh, each week and each person just writes down what they need um, prayer for. And then they email that out to the group so that they can pray outside of group. Um, Another one, one that I've done with my group is uh, to have prompts for prayer that end up with really rich biblical prayer (coughs) that's focused on God um, is to pray through the prayers of Paul. Um, And so that's, that's a really simple thing to do. You can go to a place like Ephesians 3. There's several of these in, in the New Testament. In fact, I could probably send some of these out to you if you guys are interested, and I'll just send them out. But um, you can go to places where Paul prays for the churches. And then all I do is I just, I'll often, either, I'll either print it out, or I'll just have people turn there in their Bibles, and I'll say, let's sort of spend the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes um, praying through the prayers of Paul for for uh, Corinth, you know, let's say, or for, for Ephesus. And what I'll say is, hey, just find a phrase, find an idea in there, and then basically turn that into your prayer for for our group and, and just in general. Um, and then it also really frees people who aren't comfortable praying um, since they're often just sort of reading the passage and turning it into prayer. That can be a sort of a low-pressure way to, to pray in front of the group for those who are feel a little bit nervous about that. Um, and then finally... Find extended times for prayer. Um, You know, if there there are times when you decide that your group needs prayer, then pray. (laughs) And if that means, you know, we're not really going to do much Bible discussion this week and instead we're just going to spend time praying for one another, then do that. Um, I think, you know, if you kind of have to read the room and figure out what people are going to be able to do and be comfortable with, Uh, But that can be a really special, precious time to just care for one another by praying um, and so forth. Now, the thing that I was going to talk about today, like I mentioned in the book, uh, that some of you I know have read is by John Anwuchekwa on prayer. Um, It's a very simple book, very short book. You guys would love it. Let me know if you want it. Um, But he talks about prayer, uh, God-oriented, God-centered prayer. And so one of the ways that I often will sort of push people to, to think about um, what their spiritual needs are, to sort of make sure that prayer is not just kind of a matter of asking for help with practical needs, although that's a good idea too, um, is to ask people, what do you need from the Lord through prayer right now? What do you need from the Lord through prayer? Um, I'll sometimes ask people, if you could just get an infusion of the, from the Lord of something, what would, what would it be right now? And so uh, what that does is, is help them think through, you know, what does, what does my soul need right now? What is my spiritual condition? What, am I, what do I need to actually grow to take a next step right now? Um, so those are just, uh, I want to just give you a few little ideas about how your group might grow in prayer. Um, I'll have more to say at another time when I have my book with me. Uh, but uh, I hope that this uh, gives, maybe it's just a little spark for you to incorporate a couple new ideas Um, and try something to help your group grow in prayer. If you're a group leader or if you're a group member and you're listening to this, um, ask your group leader about it. Ask what you could do to be helpful. Um, So often what I want to do is I want to prod people kind of behind the scenes and say, hey, it seems like uh, another group member could use some prayer right now. What if you reached out and asked? That's a huge help uh, for group leaders to feel like they're not just kind of the only ones uh, pushing things forward in that area. So go for it. All right. Well, with that said, let's uh, close our time in prayer. Lord, we thank you for our groups, our group members. Uh, We ask that you would use this passage in Acts 22 uh, to help our people grow, to have a good relationship with risk, uh, with rejection, to navigate wisely uh, the situations that they are facing as Christians. Lord, help us to be encouraging uh, and helpful to them, Help us to be persistent and faithful in prayer for them um, and help them to take a next step with Christ this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Talk to you next week.